Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. It is Saturday, which means it's time for a delayed Q&A podcast with me, Adam Ball, with the one and only Chris Hennage Even. and Nico Morales. How you doing? I'm doing very well. How are you, Nico? I'm doing pretty good. Today's a, today's a good day. So Why? Why is today a good day? Uh, well, for the first time since October 10th, 2017, I got to run. So. Ah, you're finally okay to, to run on it, to test it out. Well, yeah, I, 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 I was kind of like, I go by what the, by what the physical therapists tell me I can do, and today they wanted to test out some, some running and some jogging and stuff. I'm sure I could do it maybe a couple weeks ago, but they were, they felt comfortable with it today, so we tried it out and it was good. So and you're delighted, nice to I assume. Oh yeah, I mean, it's one of those things you don't know what you got till it's gone. So don't regret, you know, going outside having a run, you know, running around <laughs> kicking a ball, people. I like it. I like it a lot, Nico. Nice one. Uh, guys, we are here to A, your cues as always on a Thursday. Before we get into it, though, it is time for Hole of the Week as always. Um, Hole of the Week this week is not a review, but I wanted to give a shout out to Gus Turner. Gus ran into us <laughs> in East London, specifically myself and Statman Dave, staggering out of a, a bar on Wednesday night, uh, very nice, very excited. I, I'm not quite sure myself or Stamman Dave really warrant that amount of excitement, but it was lovely to meet Gus nonetheless. Uh, a real pleasure. So, Gus, you are the whole of the week this week. Slide into the DMs to get your hands to claim the Shreya Roche. It's the first whole of the week we've met in person. So, congratulations to Gus. Um, guys, if you want to be in with a chance of winning some Ferrero Roches, I mean, apparently now you can come up to us and be nice to us in person, or you can leave us a review on iTunes by clicking the link in the description of this very podcast, rate and review the front free to be with your chance to become the whole of the week. A prestigious honor, I'm sure we can all agree. Right, let's get in to the questions then. First up, uh, J. James Alwood asks, is Statman Dave still on the podcast? Uh, one of many people... To, uh, to ask a question along these lines yes Statman Dave is still on the front three uh, hasn't been for a little while he's a very busy man he's got a lot on at the moment as we all have um, it's been a bit of a hectic period uh, for all five of us in recent weeks as such unfortunately that's led to delayed podcasts like today's 
perhaps it's led to the quality not being to our usual high standards but believe us guys we're working very hard on getting the front three back to its best starting on monday we're going to be back with a, a slightly new format a fresh format for the monday podcast we think you're going to really like it so uh, so just watch this space we truly appreciate all of you who listen to the front three um, and we want to give you the guys the best podcasts that we can so we will be back to our best from monday onwards i can promise you that or you can at me or, or something and give me abuse. Um, let's move on to actual football questions. Uh, first off, Adam R asks, why is Phil Neville the England's women's manager? Uh, it's a great question. Uh, if you missed this earlier this week, uh, Phil Neville was appointed as the England women's team manager, uh, despite having no managerial experience and sending, let's say, some uh, some interesting tweets um, once upon a time um, that seemed to suggest a, a rather misogynist attitude, I think it's fair to say. Um, Phil decided to delete his old Twitter account to uh, to hopefully hide that. Didn't really work for him. Um, he has issued an apology now, Chris, but there are question marks over that appointment as to what exactly he's done to earn that role. Yeah, I, I wrote a piece for Yahoo kind of arguing that same point that he doesn't have a history in women's football, doesn't have a history in management. Um, so when you look past the experience he brings as a high-level footballer, there's not much to say that he's the right person to uh, lead the Lionesses. And really it's a consequence of the fact that the major candidates dropped out. Um, John Herdman, who is from Concert, which is not too far from me, opted to take a job with the Canadian men's national team after, I think, six years with the women's team and, and a similar period with New Zealand's women's team prior to that. Um, and uh, a number of, of WSL candidates opted to, to drop out as well. Laura Harvey went to, I think, Utah in the States. Um, Nick Cushing opted to stay with his club of, of Man City. Um, so there, there's been a, a few different candidates that you would say, well, this is the perfect person to, to lead. Remember, what is a, a team that's ranked third overall in the world right now in FIFA's rankings, um, got to the, the semi-finals of uh, the World Cup, is, is moving into the 2019 tournament with a lot of positivity behind it and players that will be at their peak. And they're going to be coached by someone that theoretically has no management experience to begin with. I think... Honestly, what, what this tells us more than anything is the, the the need for reform with the Football Association because one of the last things that, that Dan Ashworth did in 2017 was write a, an article letter type thing to evaluate the past 12 months. And he said that lessons had to be learned and he was referring to uh, Eniola Luko's um, unfortunate uh, situation in which Mark Sampson made derogatory racial remarks to her that were perceived as jokes, but but obviously were not that at all. Um, that kind of forced her out of the squad. Uh, Drew Spence was in a similar position, and he was found innocent on the first two hearings, and it was only the third that that kind of sealed his fate and, and ultimately saw him let go. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a whole host of other subsidiary problems within that. You also look at a lot of different issues that we don't have time to cover right now with the FA. And it does lead you to question why the likes of Ashworth and Martin Glenn and these people are able to hold on their jobs because it fell in the wake of the Enioluco case that, and, and it was even written in the press that his position had become untenable and yet he survives. And yet he, along with his colleagues, continue to make these, these rather baffling decisions. 
yeah, it's it's baffling to say the least. Um, we've got a question here from Robert, who wants to know what we think about Jose Mourinho extending his Manchester United contract until at least 2020. That news broke tonight um, in light of some uh, some recent reports suggesting that he might not be there at the end of the season. Uh, PSG apparently in for, for Jose, but he is going to be at Old Trafford for the foreseeable future. Nico, good move for Jose, good move for Edward winner Manchester United? I think so, yeah. I mean, I think it. It's these contracts are never usually, especially with these clubs that we're kind of talking about in the similar arena, they're never really seen out to the end, I think. You never really see a manager do that that much anymore, um, especially with Manchester United and how you know they, they kind of cycle through managers as of late. Um, so I think this is kind of more of a signifier of, okay, we're giving Mourinho this sort of vote of confidence without actually saying that they have, you know, a complete vote of confidence in him because usually that actually means that someone's getting sacked. Um, but yeah, I think this is kind of, you know, okay, next year, given some more investment, given, you know, maybe a couple players here or there that you absolutely need or tell us that you absolutely need. This is kind of like the one last final push, I think, for the Mourinho era. And mm-hmm. it kind of depends if he's successful over the next one or two years in in the in the competitions that I think Manchester United wants to be successful in that kind of determines his legacy at Manchester United and whether he'll be there in the future. Mm. So I think that's kind of what this signifies. It does bring uh, stability, Chris. Um, obviously, given those question marks I mentioned over his future, I mean, do you think he will stay until twenty twenty? Obviously, we all know Mourinho doesn't have a history of staying at clubs for an extended period of time. I think the last club he actually stayed at for more than three years was Chelsea in his first in the club um, from 2004 to, I think, 2007. So despite the contract, uh, given that stability, do you think he, uh, do you think we'll actually see him stay until the end of it? Uh, my, my mind is influenced by history on this one because every time he signed a contract, I look at the Chelsea situation, he signs a contract and then he departs not long after. It's almost a kiss of death for him. And, and so for that reason, I'm, I'm inclined to think probably not. Um, the only difference I think is they haven't achieved anything hear me out on this realistically with Man United domestically yet whereas with with Chelsea they had won the league it it almost felt like his methods all of those kind of things that started to pull away at things they had achieved something so you were asking yourself well if I'm going to continue with this I'm just going to do achieve the same thing again whereas I think he can perhaps elongate his time with Manchester United by the fact that they haven't won the Premier League yet so you can still convince the players that they're striving towards this goal Um, and I think that's what makes next season a a little bit make or break for him because if City do romp away with things as they they look like doing this season then I think it, it starts to make his his lessons his message a little bit harder to stomach for players uh Moving swiftly on, we've got an interesting question here from Rishab Singh. Uh, favorite non-football books? Very good question, uh, Rishab. Um, my favorite book, I think, I used to be obsessed with uh, The Beach. I don't know if you've ever read this book. Alex Garland was the writer. <laughs> it got adapted into a film with Leonardo DiCaprio. I thought that was like the best book I've ever read in my life. It was about uh, it's about backpackers who go like off to Thailand sort of thing. They find this deserted beach, this idyllic sort of paradise. They've, there's like this whole community there. It's like paradise. It all goes wrong basically. Um, that is probably my favourite ever non-football book 
and Raymond Chandler, The Big Sleep, because that's just a fantastic book. Uh, do you guys have any favourite non-football books? Nico, what are you saying? What, what sort of literature are you into? Um, for, non, for non-football books, I would probably say uh, the one I've recently read that's really, really good. You definitely is, just looked um, at your bookshelf or went to get that book, right? I, I did. I yeah. did. I, yeah. I had a look. Um, it's about the CIA. The book is flipped over from where I'm sitting, so I can't see the name. But uh, it was really good. It was about. It was written by um, the New York Times correspondent for uh, like reporting on the CIA and, and other government agencies. Is that and so fiction or, really... or nonfiction? No, no, no. It's completely uh, yeah. It's completely nonfiction. Um, and then another really good one is is obviously Madness and Civilization uh, by Michelle or Michelle Foucault. Um, French philosopher, it's like really interesting read uh, if you like philosophy. So, I re- this question's made me think I don't read enough. I need to start reading some books. Uh, Chris, uh, actually, I've been reading quite a harrowing tale about um, oh God. A, a young person's struggle to to kind of develop, and um, it's yeah, it's it's a really touching tale about someone just trying to find food and survive in in what is a very difficult world. You know the name. Uh, the Hungry Caterpillar. Ah, I got up it's... and I got up and looked at the cover of the <laughs> CIA book. It's called Legacy of Ashes, by the way. If anyone's interested, it's a really good book. So. Oh dear, Chris, did you actually just do that? I did, mate. <laughs> it's really difficult to try and work out what the synopsis is going to be without mentioning the fact it's a caterpillar. I like that. <laughs> I was like, wow, is, is Chris actually just? Yes, he did do that. Yes, guys, Hungry Caterpillar, uh, all ages. Everyone enjoys that book. It's a classic. I am actually reading um, Jordan Peterson's uh, book just to see what it is, it and he is like, given that there's a lot of buzz and hype around him at the minute. Who's Jordan Peterson? Uh, He is, I believe, a a professor of psychology that that... slash teaches at the University of Toronto. Yes, that's the guy. He's the guy who um, he says the aim of living is not to be happy. I read. That's what he said. Yeah. But that's so he's got, he's got an interesting approach. So he has a book called 12 Rules for Life, An Antidote to Chaos. Um, and I'm giving that a read just to kind of see a little bit more about him. Because I think he's clearly very intellectual, but that can obviously mask uh, more sinister traits. But actually watching some of the interviews that I've seen of him, he, he seems to get a little bit of a, a hard rap and the people either misquote, misrepresent or, or what have you. The, the things about him or the things that he says more more specifically. Mm, guys, they have it. There's a good question here that I can adapt for Adam as well since it's sort of directed at, at Chris and I. Um, it's from Deep Lying Thoughts and it says, um, well, it actually starts out, this one can be adapted for you all to answer, but it is primarily right. for Kay Hennage and Nico Morales as you both frequently write articles. Which of your articles to date are you most proud of? And I think for Adam, you know, you can just say your whatever project or work you're most proud of. That is a very good question. Um, I'm gonna have to think about that. Uh, what do you? What, what's what are you saying, Chris? What's your? What's the the article or work you're most proud of? Would you say that's a great question? Uh, the stuff I've done with the Players Tribune, probably. Yeah, all of that stuff. Um, I can't go into much detail about it, obviously, but. Being able to tell someone's story and and essentially hear what they say and then you know write as if you are them that is it's actually a very uh, emotive experience actually because you you kind of 
you have to feel what they felt or or try and understand what they felt and that in itself is um yeah it's a, it's a very new experience it's not one you really get that often with with football writing to be honest what are you saying Nika? Uh, I think sort of in the same vein, I'd probably say some of the stuff that I've done that I've done with the the ringer is really good. I think as um, you know, I've I think I've talked a little bit on this podcast about sort of my path into you know this medium and stuff like that. And I think when you get the opportunity to work with talented editors and stuff and people at really you know uh, well regarded organizations, like as a writer what they're able to get out of you and what you see in the final product is just so much better and you end up, you know, having a completely different standard for yourself in, in terms of the work that you want to put out in the future. So, you know, if there's any young writers out there, just wait until, you know, maybe one day a, a really good editor, editor will get their hands on your work and then it'll just be a completely different game. So, yeah. Mm. It's hard for me to say. I'm trying to think now. I think, um, I've worked on so much stuff over the years. I think, uh, there's a bit of everything, I think. You know, there's obviously. Um, I was very proud of the work we did at Football Daily, starting with Football Daily Weekly, which is obviously where I met Lawrence and Dave. But we sort of made that show at a time when I don't think anyone was making shows like that for a YouTube audience. Of course, they're all out there now. Every single football channel has got a show like that. But I feel like we were sort of the first guys to do that. Um, at TFR, I think we did some really great stuff as well. And uh, yeah, there's some new projects coming up that I think uh, are going to. The new project I'm working on, I think, is going to have some uh, some work I'm going to be very proud of as well. So uh, watch this space, we'll say. Um, here is a question from Sal Barrera. If Chelsea sack Conte, who is a realistic replacement for him who is available right now? And to where is the most likely destination for Marco Silva in the wake of his sacking from Watford, maybe outside of England? Let's do the first part of it first. Obviously, uh, Conte, Chris, under pressure. I think it's fair to say, um, reports today that the club aren't too happy with his frequent criticising of Chelsea's transfer policy. All is not right, it's seemingly, with the manager and the club's hierarchy. It's something we'd, well, we talked about earlier in the season. Chelsea's good form, I think, uh, sort of saw that conversation move to the back burner. I think they've only lost now two of their last 20 games. So they're on a good run of form, but yet these question marks over Conte's future persists, Chris, and it does look like he's going to be leaving at the end of the season. I find it hard to see him getting sacked when the team are currently third, they're still in the Champions League, etc. But it does feel like he's going to be leaving at the end of the season, doesn't it? It does, yeah. Um, I think you look at some of his rhetoric in press conferences, his frustration with the transfer business they have, or more importantly, haven't done... Um, it paints a very different picture to his first season at the club where I think, yes, Chelsea didn't have a huge number of title contenders, but what you have to point to is that maybe their business was a little bit more efficient or it felt that way. Now he's had, I think, a little bit more time to, to stamp his authority on things. He obviously got Morata and, and dished out uh, Diego Costa, which I think was his decision. Rudiger, for me, is, is someone that I can look at and see as an archetypal uh, Conte player but at the same time I think he hasn't really made the most of the the young players at his disposal um, I think and I speak granted with a bit of hindsight loaning out Tammy Abraham Loftus-Cheek I think they could have done something personally uh, obviously Bakayoko has been quite disappointing for large portions of his his career granted it's, it's early days um, and I think all that sort of melds together 
to paint a situation of, of frustration. And I think if there's one thing about Conte, it's that he is very bold, he is very aggressive, but so is his owner. And I don't think that uh, Roman Abramovich will appoint any sentiment to the situation, even though uh, Conte delivered a, a Premier League title. I think you just have to look at his predecessors to see a list of coaches, more, some more than others, who delivered uh, titles, success, and, mm. and, you know, were still dispatched when, when they felt that the moment was right. Clearly, Conte has made mistakes this season. Nico, um, obviously, the factor of not being a Champions League last season, we've spoken about it before, that obviously had a tremendous impact on their title win this season with the added pressure, the added commitment of all those other competitions is clearly taking its toll on the squad. But do you think, do you think there's a bigger issue for Chelsea? Do you think there's a bigger question about their status now given that we saw it illustrated with the Alexis Sanchez saga obviously Manchester United and Manchester City the two richest the two biggest clubs uh, the two top clubs at least right now in England uh, gauging in a tug of water of that transfer a lot of people are asking why why couldn't Chelsea get involved now why weren't Chelsea making a bid Conte comes out and says basically they can't afford to be it the wages be it the transfer fee as well We've seen some of the targets that they've been linked with, the likes of Andy Carroll, um, the likes of Peter Crouch, perhaps more modest uh, cost for those sort of guys. Uh, do you think Chelsea are in a difficult situation now where it appears they're not able or not willing to compete with the likes of Manchester City and Manchester United and beyond Conte, who, as I say, looks to be leaving at the end of the season, they face a struggle in that sense? Um, not necessarily. I think the Alexis Sanchez sort of dealing is an isolated incident. And I, I generally believe that Conte and the people that are involved with the, I would say that, yeah, the people that make the, the maybe the have the gravest influence on the transfer dealings at Chelsea Football Club are kind of disconnected. I think there is influence in what Antonio Conte wants at the club. But at the same time, I think they operate very differently um, in terms of transfers, in terms of spending than the other clubs in the top six do because I think they work in a different sort of time scale model um, where I know Chris has had various criticisms and rightfully so of their lack of ability to transition, you know, certain players from their youth academy that are really, really good players mm -hmm. um, to make them into their first team. But I think the way that they see those players is completely as assets. They invest a lot of time and money into those players, making them into the ones that they are. And then maybe they send them out on loan and they're completely comfortable selling those assets on to make a profit and buying something that will benefit them more in the immediacy than anything else. And I think it's not something that maybe is super normal for a club to do, but it's something that Chelsea is doing quite frequently. Um, and I mean, if that's how they want to operate, that's fine. But it, it, questions need to be asked about the long-term plan. Um, but I mean, you know, right now it, I would say that the struggles that the club are facing, and, and I would agree with the sentiment that you projected in sort of the question, which is that their form isn't that bad, but they, you know, it seems like he'll be leaving at the end of the season because once again, they operate, they know they have to operate on this sort of very short um, time scale. And I think they're going to continue to bring in players like the ones that they're supposedly bringing in right now, Emerson, Palmieri, and, uh, and Ed and Dzeko for sort of immediate success. And they'll probably pair that with another sort of defensively minded approach that can get the best out of a group of players that is already known to succeed in sort of a counter-attacking defensive situation. So I think probably someone like Leonardo Jardim will be the next uh, probable candidate at Chelsea, if not, you know, really, really defensively minded. Yeah, I think because uh, for a lot, of, if you if you kind of look at the moves that, that Chelsea have made, 
a lot of this stuff is just it's more about matching up the players to a coach that is going to implement a defensive philosophy as opposed to bringing in a coach that's going to have a different a majorly different philosophy each and every time they appoint someone let me tell you the three favorites and you guys can quickly tell me who if you had abramovich's ear you'd be advising he appoints uh we've got massimiliano allegri is the favorite followed closely by diego simeone and then thomas tuchel um the uh, former dortmund coach of course chris are those three uh who would even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Do you be recommended to, uh, to Big Roman? Diego Simeone, I think, would be probably the most popular among Chelsea yeah. fans out of those choices. I, I feel like Simeone fits the brief a little bit as well. He fits the ethos or the mentality. Because like we've talked about before, that... Chelsea, and it's not a criticism, Chelsea are quite a short-term club in terms of their hiring because I think to them they prioritise winning over everything. Now that is a little bit jarring with their, their youth development policy which has a much more long-term vision. I mean, you look at someone like Victor Moses who took a, a while to, to get established in the team and looked like he didn't have a Chelsea career at one stage. Um, yeah, I feel like Simeone brings the... That, that ability to be short-term if needed. I mean, he is quite similar to Conte, I think, in, in a lot of the ways that he'll, he'll play football as well. Um, so, yeah, I, I think if there was more patience about Chelsea, if Abramovich felt like, I need a project manager here, I need someone who will, then I would say Max Allegri would be would be very good for them. Mm. Um, but that's that that more relies on on them being willing to invest in that process. And that's because otherwise you're, you're just... You're not doing anyone a favour there. Tuchel, Allegri, Simeone, Nico, what are you thinking? Uh, I would probably agree with a lot of what Chris said there. I think, although I think you know Tuchel, I really like his style of football. I've obviously spoken at length about how much I appreciate Max Allegri. I think he's probably the best coach in the world um, for my money. But I would say the guy that fits the ethos of Chelsea best and sort of the things I talked about before with the defensively minded players, Diego Simeone would fit in sort of a three-year cycle and probably bring them either Champions League or league success and then head out. Moving swiftly on then, uh, another good question here. Well, we probably can't answer. Let's briefly answer Saul's uh, second part of his question because uh, we spent too much time on Saul. Uh, as good as questions were, where is the most likely destination for Marco Silva? Is it outside of England? Chris, uh, where does he go from here? Obviously a manager of a lot of promise, but uh, seemingly career could be cut short by uh, by the sacking recently. He, I think he wants to stay in the Premier League. Everything I've heard um, 
from people around him is that he wants to stay in England. And I think that's quite an appeal for, for someone like him. Where he goes next, I think he, again, <laughs> a, bit, a bit like Chelsea, you could say, I think he's going to have to be patient because I think he has to wait for the, the right position now. Because if he tries to take some firefight lower down the league, that could open him up in a bad way and could possibly expose uh, his flaws a little bit. Because I think the, the whole job did a fantastic uh, example of, of portraying his pragmatism and his ability to adapt quickly and maybe work with, with meagre budgets if he's given full control, which he was. At Watford, there was less control. And I think that was a big reason why it didn't necessarily work. Um, because that built a little bit of resentment that ultimately when Everton did come calling and, and probably again, like Hull, offered him some uh, some freedom in terms of the transfer market, etc. He jumped at that and, and was very much you know on, on the, the train to, to Liverpool before the talks had even started. Um, it's where those jobs will open up. That's the problem. I don't know. I could see Everton sacking Allardyce in the summer and going for him. Um, because I think they always looked at Allardyce as someone to just keep them up, to give them that safety blanket of knowing they wouldn't go down. Um, so yeah, that's that's where I think he might end up, Everton. Um, I'd be very surprised if he left England, though, because I think at the minute he still has a lot that he wants to conquer here, and I think yeah. like he feels he can conquer. Feels like that next move is is crucial for him. Um, question here: It's got to be for you, Nico, from BRWA Brua. Sultan, who said force on Laporte, Laporte, Americ Laporte to City. Um, looks like it could be a £56 million deal, I believe. Is he the answer to whatever the question Juan Hill is asking, Nico? Uh, I think this, this transfer has a lot of implications if it is, in fact, legitimate. Because the way I see Laporte is, is a, or Laporte, however you pronounce it, I'm sure I'll learn in the coming days. But... Um, if you look at him as a defender, he's one that's obviously really gifted on the ball and one that I think kind of takes after the role that John Stones is looking to fill in the team. And I, I don't really see it as I see it more as instead of it being John Stones and, and Amrick Laporte, then or I see less of that and more of who you know whoever the partner is for Otamendi because generally we talk about center back combinations and you want one to generally read the game and then one to be more aggressive and Nico Otamendi fills that role perfectly and he's obviously gotten so much better at his distribution and his passing ability um, that I think he's sort of cemented his spot in the team for a couple of years to come the the issue is finding him a partner and I think if we go after someone like Laporte I don't know what that says about the future of John Stones's involvement in a Pep Guardiola side because they seem to have very similar attributes. They're very gifted at bringing the ball into midfield. They're obviously gifted passers, but I don't see a, a situation where all you know both of those players are kind of playing at the same time because of the similarity of their attributes. And uh, you, you know, a back three system could be mentioned, but and and realistically, when Benjamin Mendy comes back, that is the system that I think Manchester City will play because that's the system that they used earlier on the season previous to his uh, ACL injury. But I don't think it will necessarily incorporate three out and out center backs. It might. I could be wrong, um, and that might be the move. That might be the plan for the future. But it, it, I think it, it definitely says something maybe about uh, Guardiola's expectations of of John Stones. Not that he completely doubts him, but it's an interesting one to think about. Here's a question from Baxton, Baxton98, who says, thoughts on the new Leeds badge? Have we all seen the new Leeds badge, guys? 
Yeah, I have. Uh, if you haven't seen it, it is the new crest that Leeds are introducing to celebrate the centenary, the 100 years of the club. It's supposed to be coming in at the start of next season. It's a completely redesigned badge, very modern, I'd say. It's kind of uh, it's kind of a guy tapping his chest, tapping the badge. That's a sort it's of kind of a it's kind of a mind fuck of a badge, isn't it? It's yeah. It's like you look for the badge and you're looking at an actual badge, but then you look for the badge, what it's supposed to look like on the guy's shirt. And there is and no he's badge. with his fist. There's nothing. So then it keeps on going into this like cycle. What's he cut? And then, you know. So, so it was supposedly um, the club had supposedly consulted 10,000 fans. Um, they supposedly took 10 months of consultation to get to this point. Um, weirdly enough, it wasn't received particularly well on uh, Twitter and elsewhere, especially among Leeds fans. So apparently they've released uh, a statement earlier today to say that they, uh, they're working on the identity. They've phrased it as, we are currently committed to working to create an identity that we can all be proud of. We will release further information on how supporters can get involved in the process next week. Um, so it looks like it will be changing after all. They're going to bow to the pressure. I mean, it just seems to be a bit of a mess, Chris. Um, QPR, I think, did this right um, last year, I believe. Um, they changed their crest once again, but they kind of had a fan voting um, system where they had four potential badges. Everyone could vote on it. Everyone could get involved. It wasn't a closed-door sort of consultation that had seemingly taken place. It was more of a public um, process where, like I say, all the fans could get involved. Leeds didn't seem to do that, or at least uh, publicly didn't seem to do that. Do you think that's part of the issue? Do you think it was just poorly conceived in the first place? I mean, it's a, a bit of a joke of a badge, to be honest. Yeah, the, the badge is terrible. I, I saw something, I don't know if it was legit, um, a tweet that showed you it was a very basic badge that you could find on pretty much a, a standard design website. So there wasn't this huge detailed consultation process that that was suggested. Um I think, yeah, you, you kind of hit the nail on the head that when you change a badge like this, and, and all our clubs have uh, changed their badge, I believe, during during uh, our lifetime, um, you you need to consult the supporters on it. It just makes common sense to do it, even, even if there's no uh, literal obligation to do so. Um, I think it just saves you a lot of needless hassle, and, and more importantly, it's a lot less embarrassing because um, that's ultimately what this is, has come to is that um the owner has at first said i'm not going to change it it's going to stay as it is obviously the backlash has been uh quite strong from leeds fans and at the same time quite uh comedic from rival clubs i know villa advertised uh their upcoming game against leeds as if it was two teams on pre-evolution soccer meeting which i thought was quite funny Fair. Uh, even zenit got in on it um there was a few different clubs from abroad did it and now they've had to, you know, sort of dial it back and say, okay, actually, we will do it. So it's just a lack of common sense all around. Mm. Uh, we'll, we'll see what happens with that one, but I'm pretty sure it's going to be changed. It's going to be changed something closer to uh, the sort of the rose element that will be in the new badge. I'm, I'm pretty sure of that. And it won't be some guy. As you say, Chris, it looks like a, a pro Evo cover. Um, another question here, again from Rishab Singh. Two questions, cheeky. But he says, is football becoming too philosophical? People overly obsessed with character, passion, leaders, than cold-blooded tactics that win matches? Uh, interesting question. I'll put that to you, Nico, as a, as a tactically-minded, analytically-minded guy yourself. Uh, is football becoming too philosophical? I would have suggested um, no. 
I would say it's interesting that he thinks uh, that the like descriptions of a player being passionate or you know overly emotive is philosophical. I think you know mm-hmm. the exploration of of tactics and the things that different managers use and the tactics they, that they employ is rather um, a philosophical projection of who they are as people and that's kind of the thing that we delve into and I like to delve into is sort of like Klopp's representation of himself and and his beliefs on how to play football through the tactics that he employs which is you know pressing and obviously the same goes for Guardiola and Conte and other stuff like that so I mean I don't think so but if he thinks so then I'm sorry (laughs) (laughs) fair um, yeah, I I, yeah. I, I don't feel like he's becoming too philosophical in that sense. I think uh, you know something that's always been focused on is the characters, the passion, etc. of football. Um, loads of questions to try and get through here. We're not going to have time for all of them. I'm afraid we'll try and save them for next week because there are some great ones. But um, we've got one here from Dan Deakins who says, do Spurs have to win the FA Cup and get to the final eight of the Champions League to keep hold of Kane, Ali, Eriksen, etc.? Levy will surely have to break his wage structure to keep them all. Very interesting question. Um, it's an interesting one for Spurs. I think it's something we've spoken about many times on this podcast about having that tangible end product from this this squad, this fantastic team that's been built at Spurs. It feels like they are in the third year of this kind of cycle, given the two title challenges uh, in previous seasons. Um, it's a difficult situation because obviously now... Uh, in hindsight, obviously, that, that those two seasons probably were the best chances to win the league. It's, it feels sad to say that. I don't necessarily think Spurs failed in any sense, but I do think that that, that was the chance because now Manchester City, Manchester United, looks like they're going to sort of pull further away from the chasing pack from Spurs, Liverpool, even Chelsea, as we mentioned earlier. In terms of keeping those players, I feel like Kane is not an immediate danger, uh, in immediate danger of leaving the club, despite the reports this week that Real Madrid are going to be 200 million. I just can't see the club being willing to sell him. I can't see the player having his head turned like that currently. I think Ali, however, is probably the more uh, more realistic potential transfer out of the club. Um, I'd say Ericsson is probably safe as well, especially if, uh, if a new contract can be agreed. I feel like... I might be wrong to say this. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, Chris. I feel like Ali is probably the most expendable out of those players. Obviously, Harry Kane is, is integral. He's the most important player at Spurs. And Ericsson as well is crucial to what Spurs do in the final third. We saw him missing, obviously, last week against Southampton. We saw what impact that had. So I feel like Ali, as good as he is and as much as I love him and, and as fantastic a player he is, is potentially the most expendable out of those those key players. Yeah, I, th- I was thinking about this recently, actually. I might, might have been watching the, the Southampton game or something. It was a remark my, my dad had made, actually, about kind of just the fact that, really, if you, if you took goals away, which is, are hugely important, of course, Ali isn't someone that necessarily contributes in the open play and that he's, he's quite susceptible to to disappearing in games. And I do and I do look at that, uh, that team right now when I look at Christian Eriksen, who... Uh, I think he's a fantastic playmaker who is, is also very versatile as well. And if I had to to take those, what I consider three key components for Spurs, which is Kane, Ali and Eriksen, if I, if I had to try and replace one, I would feel like I'd have the best shot with Ali um, as a goal-scoring midfielder. I think you can find players like that who can play as a, a sort of support striker, shadow striker type um, midfielder. 
And so, yeah, I'm, I'm actually, yeah, I'm really inclined to agree with you on that one. Mm, I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens in the summer and, and with the way structure at Spurs, famously. Um, Spurs have this way structure where they, they don't go above 100 grand a week. They don't pay those uh, wages above that. However, they have sort of seemingly bent the rules a little bit. Kane is reportedly on 120 grand a week um, with add-ons and bonuses, etc. So they have already gone above that threshold for Kane, who obviously, as I said, is so important and the club are so keen and desperate to keep hold of. Um, but I think given what we're seeing at Manchester United team, what we're given what we're seeing at Manchester City as well, the wages that are being paid at the top clubs around the world, we might see Spurs have to uh, raise that ceiling 250 grand to 200 grand it's going to be difficult because I think the club is run extremely well and uh, the current strategy that they have is obviously incredibly effective. I mean, the team we've built for the money we've built it for is incredible. When you look at the the, the, the wages that we pay, I think we're the, the sixth highest um, uh, for wages in the league right now. So technically we are overachieving. But it's going to be interesting to see how that whole sort of situation develops. I mean, with the new stadium as well, is it even possible for Spurs in terms of the finances to pay those sort of wages? Perhaps not. I mean, I think unfortunately, um, you know, we're looking at Spurs are uh, Spurs are uh, Spurs are creating that stadium and Spurs are building that stadium so they can compete in the next sort of five six years. That's the the, the cycle that we're looking at, unfortunately. So it'll be interesting to see how Spurs can keep up with the bigger teams in the league and the big wage payers and the bigger spenders. With that being the ultimate sort of target, I think. Um, moving swiftly on, uh, let's go for one more question, which is from... Da, 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 let's find a good one to end on. Da, da, da. Ah, Sanjeet Singh Garsha says, What do you think of the UEFA Nations League? I like it as it might mean England can test themselves in a competitive environment against some pretty good teams if it's taken seriously by the managers slash FA may also provide some pretty good games. Thoughts? Um, I broadly agree with that, what Sanji's saying. Um, I feel like it hasn't been well communicated by UEFA. I don't think that the concept itself has, has been explained properly uh, to the public. Obviously, the idea is that there is this competitive environment, there is this competitive league where you can sort of do away with friendlies, you can sort of take away that issue of these games being meaningless, of it being a trudge, of fans not being invested in international football with the club game obviously taking priority. I think it's a, a step in the right direction, Chris. Uh, would you agree with that? It provides some entertainment, it tries to, to deal with the issues that have sort of made international football less exciting and less alluring in recent years. Yeah, I think that's that's kind of been one of the problems with with qualification and and those elements for for a while now is that um, the golfing class or talent is is too big for most nations to make a real dent. I think Iceland are the outlier in that, but you can't make the exception the rule. And I think even when nations like say the Faroes, for example, have have been able to to accrue points or what have you, they've done it by being quite defensive rather than open and expansive and and so you have to try and develop a system where those teams can progress and the best way to progress is to play competitive games where ideally you're not trying to just uh not lose the game so yeah i, th I think this is an interesting thing i still need to see and read more about it to have a, 
a definitive opinion, but I think of the options I've seen put forward, it looks like it's the best one. Right, guys, that does bring us to the end of the Q&A podcast. Um, we've run out of time, unfortunately. So many great questions. I'm going to favourite them all. I'm going to save them. We're going to answer them next week. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for listening. We're going to be back on Monday with a brand new podcast. Uh, until then, Chris, where can the whole find you? At Kehenich. Uh And Nico? They can find me at Nico underscore Omoralis on Twitter. Just wrote uh, or just put out an article about uh, what did I? It was about Manchester City and sort of their Champions League aspirations and um, what that has to do with uh, with how teams play them and and sort of the you know how we're defined by the other things around us in terms of teams and tactics and stuff like that. So if you want to read that, it's on my Twitter. Guys, thanks so much for joining us. Enjoy the FA Cup this weekend, and we'll see you on Monday. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 